Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, January 9th, 2021. Right now it is Wednesday morning, and once again, I have our friend Truthvids here with us to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 22 of this series. In our last presentation, which was proof 43 in this list of 100 proofs, we discussed particular passages in the Old Testament where certain terms are mistranslated or misunderstood, which also adversely affect the interpretation of scriptures throughout the entire Bible. Doing that, we did not discuss every possible error of interpretation in the Old Testament, but rather we only sought to address the passages which would change one's view of Scripture and potentially one's entire worldview once they are understood correctly within the context of the entire Scripture. With these interpretations, which we uphold to be correct, all of these seeming conflicts and inconsistencies within Scripture vanish. God is no longer the hypocrite, which the denominational churches make him out to be, and we can know that God is true. So now here, beginning with proof number 44, we will endeavor to do that same thing in the New Testament. It will be longer than one presentation or one portion of the series. It'll actually carry on for several weeks. Hello, Truthvids. Thank you for being here once again. Hey, Neil. Thanks, family. Yeah, so um, as we learned, there were quite a few mistranslations in the Old Testament but uh, guess what? There's even more in the New Testament, as uh, this is where Christ came to reveal the mysteries or what was uh, hidden from the foundation. Obviously, the Jews would have to cover up more and more. And um, we could start starting with John. We'll see that a lot of the views about universalism and who the real Israelites all come down to these mistranslations. And this is where people get the idea that Jesus came for everybody and uh, he wants to save everybody and that his people are the Jews, that he came, that God came down, but he just couldn't quite do it. He couldn't convince his own people. I guess he's just not all powerful. And instead, instead, he turned to us, the Europeans, as the second choice. And as we'll show that that's nonsense, he really came for us, the Israelites. Right, Bill? Well, well, right, absolutely. Christ came specifically and exclusively for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, as he said, that the modern churches don't interpret the scripture along the lines of the meaning, the true meanings of Greek words, or, or the, I should say, the conventional meanings of Greek words as they were used in the common vernacular at the time of Christ and the apostles. They would rather translate the scriptures and understanding along their doctrinal beliefs 
and doing that, they create lies about Scripture, and, and they put the Scripture in conflict with itself. The New, new Covenant was made exclusively with and for the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And when they get to the New Testament, in spite of the fact that Paul of Tarsus upheld that same principle in his epistle to the Hebrews, in spite of that, they want to redefine what a house is, or, or they want to ignore that fact and just claim that that represents Israel in general, and Israel is now the church instead of being a race of people. The truth is that the children of Israel were a race of people in the Old Testament, and they're still a race of people in the New Testament. And there is nothing that ever changed that, except for their claims about particular verses. And one of those passages that, that's significant, a significant part of their church doctrine on this matter is John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, and for that reason, I believe we should start there. These, I don't know if you... And it kind of sets up the whole book, right? So, uh, sorry, yes. I was just going to say, if the, no, if the beginning's right. warped, the view of the whole book gets warped as well. Absolutely. And, and this, this passage being poorly translated and poorly understood, it does. It, it, it sets the, the, the tone, the attitude for the, the entire balance of the interpretation of the Gospel of John, and it universalizes a document that was written solely for a very specific people, whereas with their misinterpretations of a half dozen passages, perhaps, or a half dozen verses, which are, are absolutely contrary to what was originally being said, they can convince that the they can convince people that this book is for everybody, and you can become one of these people whom the book is for only if you believe. You have to believe, and they don't even really explain what it is that you have to believe. You have to believe Jesus. Well, what did Jesus say? Most people, if they knew what Jesus actually said, they wouldn't believe him because he only came for one particular race of people, and, and his words only apply to that particular race of people. By his own words, he said that. So the churches really obfuscate a lot of translations so that they can lie about what he said elsewhere. When Christ said, I come but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel, that means I only came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That word lost is past tense. They're already lost. And that's who he came to recover. And that house of Israel is a family a house is a family in the ancient world. Nobody could be could make themselves a part of your house unless they were one of your kin, unless 
that they were actually related to you. One of your descendants were a part of your house. Perhaps a brother and his descendants are a part of your, your house, but not really. They're a part of your father's house. So that these terms have, have lost their meanings in church doctrines. And, and that doesn't mean that the apostles didn't know that what they were speaking about when they used these terms. Why would they use that term? The first verses we should discuss, as, as I said, are, are John 1, 11 through 13. But we will return to particular passages in Matthew, Mark, and Luke a little later on. As I said, and, and especially that there are thousands of poor translations in the King James Version of the Bible and in many other versions in the Old Testament, but we're only choosing to discuss those passages which, which mold your view of the Scripture because these particular verses that are mistranslated in several places in the New Testament have actually been used as memes, more or less, in, in order to, or as factoids, things which appear to be true and, and are repeated so often, even though they're not really true, that they are factoids or even cliches that, that mold the churchgoer's view of Scripture even before he ever opens a Bible. And, and most churchgoers don't open Bibles. They just take it for granted that these translations are correct, that their pastors know what they're talking about, and that's not true. They don't know. The denominational Christians twist the meaning of these verses in John to prove at once the chosen people myth of the Jews, and then the idea that anyone who professes to believe somehow becomes a child of God, and that idea is actually in conflict with the chosen people myth of the Jews. So they're upholding this myth at the same time that they're claiming that, that you don't have to be one of these people if you want to become one of these people. It makes no sense to me. The truth is that these verses are not necessarily saying what they have been translated to say. And the notes that, that I'm going to present today are actually, for the most part, based on an essay I wrote in 2006 on these three passages. And, and I had written that essay from what were my translation notes I made when I had done the Christian New Testament translation of the Gospel of John. So I elaborated on them again in my recent commentary on John. Here, I will try to condense them and, and perhaps make them a little easier to digest in, in this audio presentation. That may not be possible for me. <coughs> Excuse me. So in the King James Version, John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, read as follows. He came into his own and his own received him not. And that's fairly ambiguous. And then in verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God. 
as if you have to do something to become a son of God. You have, you, you have the ability to do it, but having received Christ, you now have to do something in order to accomplish that ability. Even to them that believe on his name. And then in verse 13, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, I believe all men are born of, of blood, right? I, I mean, Adam means to be ruddy or rosy-cheeked, and the word dom means blood. I, I, I don't know what other, man, what, what other way men might be born, and, and nor of the will of the flesh, the way that's interpreted, as far as I'm concerned, in denominational churches, well, it seems that all men are born of the will or desire of the flesh. If you want to imagine that that only relates to natural birth, if you don't have a desire for a woman, there is going to be no children because you don't desire that woman. But there's a different shade of meaning to that will of the flesh that only becomes evident in, in the laws against committing fornication and, and in the fact that all men must be born from above if they are going to see the kingdom of heaven. So there's something different going on here than simply the way that the denominational Christians accept this passage. We have problems with that translation and the popular conception of what it means in each of these three verses. There's one issue in each of these three verses. So we're going to begin by discussing verse 11 and a clause that contains two phrases. And each phrase has a different form of the same Greek word idios, where it says... In our translation, he came into his own land, and then the men of the country received him not. And there's particular reasons why we read the verse in that manner, and, and we can establish that. I don't know if you have anything to add before I continue. Well, funny enough, uh, in this period of time, people would understand it a lot more when they look at their own towns and their own countries, what you're about to say, right? That it is not what it used to be a hundred years ago, as in a whole mixed race bastards all around us. Well, well right. I mean, that there's an example in, in my own life. I mean, I was born in Virginia Beach in Virginia. And my parents met there, and it was a nice, quaint, shore town back in the 1950s. And, of course, there was a, a, a large naval installation, a Navy base nearby in Norfolk and, and in Newport News. So it was a military town. Military people were settling there in, in the 1950s. That's where my parents met. That's where they lived. That's where I was born. And when I was very young, they moved me away. If I go back there today, 
it's nothing like the Virginia Beach my parents left. It's predominantly black now, where when my parents lived there, it was practically all white. So how could I say that I belong in Virginia Beach? And, and it's the same thing with where I was raised in Jersey City in, in the 1960s and 70s was predominantly white, and now it's predominantly black and Hispanic. I haven't been there now in 25 years. Can I go back and live there? And, and would the people that are there now accept me as that being my home? when I would be completely alien to those people. So no, they wouldn't accept me. Yeah, if you said you came for the white Virginians, they would just kill you, wouldn't they? They would chase you out of the town. Yeah, right. If I said I only came for the original inhabitants of Virginia Beach, like Christ said he only came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, if I went back to Virginia Beach and said, well, I was born here and this was my first home, so I only want to talk to the original inhabitants of Virginia Beach, that they would want to kill me. Right. And the same thing with Jersey City. Oh, I was raised here. I lived here for um, how many years? Of 15 years of my life, I think it was. And, and then we moved to Bayonne. But I really spent my entire 20 years, of my 30, 36 years of my life in and around Jersey City. I'm sorry. So, so having spent 36 years there, and, and I go back and say, oh, I only want to talk to the original inhabitants of Jersey City. And, and yeah, right. They would hate me. They would hate me if I, if I went out on the avenues. Oh, don't talk to me. You're not an original um, Jersey Cityite. Basically, that's what Christ was doing. He came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He, he was calling his people as their shepherd and the people that were dwelling there at his time, that they rejected him. And, and we have to look at that the, the King James translation here, he came into his own and his own received him not. It's poetic. It sounds good. It really does. It's, it's a, a literary masterpiece of translation that's so imbued into our minds that we just accepted that's the correct reading, but what are his own, or what does it mean by that? This word idios, which it is found translated as own in both parts of this, of this verse, is primarily an adjective, and both occurrences of the word in this passage are accompanied by a definite article. So where we see that, that means that each phrase is actually a substantive or a word or group of words that are functioning as a noun. So the article plus the adjective is a substantive. If the adjective is read and it's written in the plural with a definite article, and the definite article is neuter, then it's talking about red things. But if the definite article is masculine, then it's talking about red people, perhaps, right? Depending on the context. Red men or, or feminine, then it's talking about red women. So 
Esau was red and hairy, but the and and that's an adjective use of that word red. When it's with a definite article, it's a substantive, and in the context of the passage, it's it's a noun. So, in this passage, only the second occurrence can refer to people. The first occurrence must designate something material. In the first occurrence, idios is a neuter plural form. Idios and the adjective, the definite idios, the adjective, and the definite article that accompany it are in the neuter plural form. So it's a noun describing things or, or something that's his own. The second occurrence is a masculine plural form. So the first occurrence has nothing to do with people. As the denominational Christians like to interpret those words, his own, <clears throat> as they appear in the King James Version. It is neuter, so it cannot refer to the people of Judea. The ninth edition of Liddell and Scott's Greek-English lexicon and I prefer Liddell and Scott because that lexicon was the standard for scholars in England and in the United States for probably 60 or 70 years at least. And, and it still is considered the most authoritative lexicon in many circles. It was the standard Greek-English lexicon for scholars for, for throughout the 20th century. And all of the classics, the translations of the classics done in places such as Harvard and Cambridge and Oxford relied primarily on this lexicon for an understanding of how words in Greek were used and what they mean. The downside of it is that Liddell and Scott always included the words as they were translated, definitions of the words as they were translated in the King James Version and upheld them to be, those translations to be authoritative because English culture, modern English culture is founded on that King James Version translation of the Bible. It is such a, a um, large part of the foundation of our culture that it's been recognized as an authority, even when it's wrong. It's recognized as an authority. And, and that's the Church of England and the impact it's had on the English-speaking world, which includes America and, and, and of course, Canada, Australia, and, and everywhere else that the English people settled. So Liddell and Scott define this phrase, this use of the word idios in the neuter plural as meaning one's own property, citing examples from secular Greek writings. Thayer's Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, Joseph Thayer, in, in the late 1800s, this is a specific lexicon defining words according to how they're used in the Bible, he has one's native land for this phrase. Christ, being a man of Judah, Judea was his native land. Christ, being the legitimate heir to the throne of Judah, 
Judea was also his land in that respect, although the descendants of David had not possessed it in many centuries. So it's his land that he came into, or his inheritance that he came into. Now for the second phrase derived from idios here, which is the masculine plural. The ninth edition of Liddell and Scott has members of one's family or relatives. Yet the 1996 revised supplement to the ninth edition adds for the singular a fellow townsman in addition to relatives. So if I went back to Jersey City or Virginia Beach, those people that live there now might be considered idioi to me in, in that respect, that they belong to that town or that place which was my land. Even though I didn't have deed and title to the land, I was born there or I was raised there, and, and that's my native country or my native habitation. So if I go back there and all the people are alien to me, there's still going to be um, hoi idioi, which is the plural masculine form of this term, of this phrase. And that's the form that appears here in this second portion of, of this verse in John. Hoi idioi, which might be my relatives in a given context, but it might only be the people of that land in this context. That's how I have to read that. Thayer says of hoi idioi that it could be one's fellow countrymen or associates. And he cites this very passage of John in order to support that definition, one's fellow countrymen or associates. Here, it should be stated that hoi idioi, that, that phrase, may just as well be referencing ta idia, which are the people belonging to that land and not Christ himself. So in order to understand this, it must be realized that not all of the inhabitants of Judea at the time of Christ's coming were of his people Israel, that there were strangers there in great number. And he himself tells us that very thing in John chapter 8, where, where he disclaims them as being from his God, as being from his father. He tells them that somebody else is their God and their father. And then in John chapter 10, verse 26, and, and we can't take the time to explain all of the relevant passages, but for our purposes here this evening, it should suffice to cite his words in John 10, 26, but, and he's telling this to, to his adversaries, to the men who opposed him in Jerusalem, in the temple, where he was standing when he said these words, in his land, speaking to the men of the land, he says, but you believe not because you are not my sheep. You are not of my sheep as I said unto you. Where did he say that unto them previously? He said it in John chapter 8. 
a conversation which took place in the same place with the same man just a short time before. It's apparent that his enemies did not believe him because they were not his people in the first place. So if they are not his people in the first place, they may have been the men of the land, but they were not his. And, and interpreting this correctly boils down to a simple principle that we cannot force an interpretation of the clause here in John 1.11, which causes the writing of John, which causes John's writing to contradict that record in John chapter 10 or in any of the other places where it clearly causes a conflict. These are not his own meaning the people of Christ. These are hoi idioi, the men of the land, which was his land, ta idia. So if we understand the phrase hoi idioi to be a reference back to what John had described in the first part of the verse, which is the land of Judea, then there is no contradiction with any of the later statements where Christ had disavowed these people because they were not his people in the first place. And that is true. While Judea at that time did have many Israelites, it was also populated and controlled by a great number of Edomites. And that is what Christ is telling his adversaries in John chapter 8 that they may have been Abraham's seed, as Esau was, but they were not true children of Abraham, because Esau's descendants were bastards. And Paul of Tarsus also explains these same things in Romans chapter 9 and Hebrews chapter 12. That is how and why Christ said to them, but you believe not, because you are not of my sheep. So he came into his own land, and the men of the country believed him not. And, and those definitions of those two phrases, ta-idia and hoi-idioi, are found in the definitions of the word idios in Liddell and Scott in the ninth edition of their lexicon, and in Joseph Thayer, in his Greek-English lexicon. So I'm not making innovations. I'm only reading the phrases properly within the context of the Gospel of John, so that we get started and, um, off. And most of um, Christ's disciples were up north, weren't they, from Galilee? Right. So, so a lot, he had a lot of resistance in Jerusalem, which, which would have been Judah. Absolutely. And, and even in John chapter 7, at given times, at diverse times, he didn't want to go into Judea for fear of the Jews. Because it was not his time to die yet, he avoided at diverse times going into Judea, knowing that they would seize him and try to kill him. He died on his terms, not on their terms at the time which he appointed back there in the books of the prophets in the manner 
in which he appointed, because he was the Lamb of God, he had to die on the Passover, like the Lamb of God did back there in, in the first Passover in the Exodus from Egypt. So, Bill, could John 1.11 technically be translated their way? But, or, or, you know, even though it doesn't make sense with the rest of the, you know, book of John, or, or is it completely wrong uh, if we follow the Greek? Well, well, if we simple, the King James version is too simplistic because it does not distinguish between the plural neuter, ta idia, in the first half of John one eleven, and the masculine, the plural masculine, hoi idioi, in the second half. So not distinguishing precisely between the two genders. And, and this is a problem in English too, right? In, in every European language, whether it be um, German or any of the Germanic languages or Latin or any of the Romance languages or Greek, there are distinctions in, in the gender of nouns and pronouns. And, and in some cases, like in Spanish or French or Greek, of articles that accompany those nouns, where they are either masculine or feminine or neuter. And, and some words are, are naturally like prosopus or prosopon is neuter in its form. And anthropus, which is the word for man, is masculine in its form. But Gune, which is a more specific term for a woman, is feminine in the form of the word. And other words that don't imply sex by themselves or gender by themselves are, are nevertheless masculine, feminine, or neuter. Um, Martoria, which is a martorion, which is a testimony or a proof, it is neuter in its form. Logos, which is a word or a saying, and logismos, which is a rec reckoning or a calculation, that they are masculine in their form. And it's not that to say that words are male, but the grammatical form of the word as it came to be used, is masculine. But in Greek, there's another aspect that you could purposely write a word in, its, in another form to make it feminine. You see what I mean? You could make it feminine if you want, if you really need to express the term in, in a feminine context as a feminine idea, you could write it in a in, in the feminine form, even though that's not the quote unquote normal or common form, right? So so cardia or heart, that word cardia in its grammatical form is feminine. Does that mean that every man has a woman's heart? No, it's just the way the language developed. And in English, we don't have that. 
we, we don't have nouns that are either masculine or feminine. Basically, I, I mean, we have nouns like that describe men and women, that we understand women to be feminine, but that is at a um, an abstract form, an, an abstract concept of gender. Our nouns don't have a gender. Heart, the word heart by itself has no gender. But the word cardia in Greek is a feminine grammatical form. So there's a difference there. English nouns have no gender. So when you're translating terms from Greek or, or German or, or Italian into English, you should consider the distinctions which the grammatical gender of those nouns in those languages signifies. And, and when you take a word like idios, idios is masculine in, in its form. But here we have a purposeful ta idia form of the word written in, in a neuter form when the natural dictionary version of the word could very is is masculine and and when you see that you really have to express that in your translation or you're leaving something out so they basically left something out yeah, john of did it for a reason i'm sorry i said yeah john did it for a reason he didn't like make a mistake or anything well, well right exactly the the language is purposeful and, and that phrase, ta'idia, is purposeful. So if you make that distinction in your translation between the neuter form and the masculine form, then you are being true to the original text, right? So where Judeo-Christians, where denominational Christians read, he came into his own and his own received him not, they just get this general idea that Christ was a Jew, he came among the Jews, and the Jews did not receive him. But that's not what it's saying. So I would think that because the translation is not more precise, for that reason, it's wrong. I'm so glad we got rid of all this um, male, female, uh, newer stuff <laughs> in English. Well, well, right, but it allows a writer to, to make more precise statements and, 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 and more concise statements, right? It, it allows the writer, it, it, it opens the door for more possibilities in, in writing. And, and it opens the door for one to be more expressive, I believe, when there, are, when there is gender in nouns, but we don't have it. It makes the language a lot more complicated but I mean, the, the Greeks didn't have a problem learning Greek, and, and the Romans didn't have a problem themselves learning Latin. <laughs> Our minds can do it. They can speak a more complex language. In, in fact, I, I would think that we probably have to go out of our way in English to phrase things that, that we have to put extra words in where simply using a masculine noun purposely as as a feminine or a neuter what would make it easier 
In other words, if you want to properly interpret that this this phrase, that this clause, I should say, Aistaidia um, Elfen is four words, and I would have to translate as he came into his own lands, which is six words, right? Or into his own inheritance, which is six words, in order to properly express those four words, right? But it must be done if you want to reflect the original meaning of what John said, where the King James Version kept it at four words. He came into his own. No, I'm sorry. That's five words. So <laughs> perhaps it can't be expressed in four words in English. And that's because one word in, in Greek it is, a, is in a form which is he came in English. It has to be two words in English to be properly translated. Okay, now, now I'm digressing too much, probably. This leads us to verse 12. And this, our contention with this verse is only the application of a verb. But the entire context of the Bible should determine how we apply this verb. So in verse 12, the King James Version has, but as many as received him, speaking of Christ, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And our contention with this translation is focused on the Greek clause, which includes this verb, genestahi, and it's translated to them he gave power to become the sons of God. We don't agree with that translation. This also causes conflict with many other scriptures. For example, in Matthew chapter 15, Christ had said that I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. By describing sheep, which were already lost, he implies that those sheep had a prior relationship with God. Then, in John chapter 11, we read that Christ would die, not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered, past tense, were scattered abroad. John chapter 11, verse 52. So the children of God were already scattered abroad. And these are the already lost sheep for whom he had come. So they were already children of God before they ever heard the gospel. And therefore, they were not going to have a choice as to whether or not to become children of God if they ever heard the gospel. Likewise, Paul professed that he was bringing the gospel to far-off nations for the promise of the 12 tribes made to the fathers. In Acts chapter 26, the 12 tribes that were made to the fathers, the promise of the 12 tribes that were made to the fathers long, long, long before Christ ever came. So we would contend that if this clause in verse 12 of this first chapter of John 
if it can be read in a manner which does not conflict with these other passages, then it must be read in that manner, since, once again, John cannot be honestly interpreted in any manner which would force his writings to contradict him, to contradict themselves. Why would you purposely interpret a passage in Greek and force the author of that work to contradict himself somewhere in some later chapter? If you could interpret it in another way, whereby the writer is not contradicting himself, which approach to translation is the honest approach? Now, there are ambiguities in Greek, right? And this is one of them. This verse reflects one because the system of, of um, gender and the system of case, how case is determined, is not always clear. And when I say case, I, I mean whether a term, of, and, and we're missing this in English too, right? In Greek, not only does every noun have a gender, it has a case. And this is also true in Latin. And if I'm not mistaken, it's also true in German, even though I don't know a lick about German. If a noun appears in a particular case, that means that it's being used in a particular part of speech. And it's important to determine the case and the part of speech before you translate the passage. So, in, in Greek, in other words, you could say, John threw the ball. And if you say John threw the ball, then the noun for the word Johannes is going to be in the nominative case. And the form of the ending of that noun is going to tell you that it's the nominative case so that you don't make a mistake and think that the ball threw John. It doesn't matter what the word order is. If the word ball is in a nominative case, and if the word John is in the accusative case, then the word ball is the subject of the verb, and the word John is the object of the verb. And you would have to write the ball through John, even if that doesn't make a lick of sense. That's the way you would have to write it. But if John's in the nominative case and ball is in the accusative case, then you would write John through the ball. That's how important it is to correctly read the, the case of, of the nouns and determine the subject and the object, right? So, in this is, clause... Is that, is that also, Storyville, why um, when they translated names from other languages... They couldn't end it in certain letters because they wouldn't be able to change it. Is that true? Well, well right. There, there are some words which are considered indeclinable in Greek. So wherever you see David, whether it's in whether David's the subject or the object, or, or whether he might be um, whether the the passage would insist that he's the source of something or, or that something belongs to him, which is the genitive case, right? 
when you see the genitive case, that's what it distinguishes, that that object is the source of something or the origin of something or that something belongs to that object, right? And then you have the dative case, right? Where with the dative case, if you see a noun in the dative case, that means that something is going to or being with or accompanying that object, right? So in Greek, it, if Bill went with John, right, the word Bill would be in a nominative case because it's the subject of the verb went, and the word John would be in the dative case. And you don't need a preposition to imagine that Bill went with John or that Bill went to John. But if we add a preposition, the word John would still be in a dative case, but then the preposition would distinguish whether Bill went with John or Bill went to John, right? In either case, that word John, the name, would be written in the dative case. But there are some nouns in Greek and most of them were foreign nouns, like the word, like the name David, which were considered indeclinable. And that's because in Greek grammar, every um, Greek word, every Greek noun ends with either a vowel, an S, an R, or an N. Every single Greek noun. There's only one or two exceptions, and that's the the words ek and x, which are prepositions, and the word x or hex, which is the number six, they are the only exceptions that I know offhand. They end in k or x. So I don't think there are any other exceptions, but every other Greek noun ends in a, a, um, a vowel, an R, an N, or an S, and to those endings that these declensions are added, which are other letters that inform us as to whether it's in the nominative case, the accusative case, the dative case, the vocative case, or, or the genitive case. And, and there's a, also a couple of other cases. The ablative case, I think Greek has eight cases which all indicate um, the role which that object is playing in the sentence. So I hope I explained that sufficiently. And, and it's important to understand here because in this case, in John chapter 1, verse 12, there's a word in this clause, and the word is techna. And that's a plural form of the neuter noun, technon. In, in, um, in Greek, the word for son is phios. The word for daughter is, it is kind of strange. It's thugater. Thugater, I believe, is, it, it's a long word. It, it's not a short one. It's, um, thugater is naturally feminine and huios is naturally masculine because that's daughter and son and 
technon is child, and it's actually a neuter noun, but in its plural form, children. It's ambiguous since the same form is used for both the nominative case and the accusative case. And therefore, it is debatable whether the word is the subject or the object of the verb here, which is actually an aorist infinitive form of this word genomahi, and that's genestahi is the aorist infinitive form. And in its most basic interpretation, it means to come into being. Here, for reasons that I hope become evident as we proceed, I must treat tekna as the subject of the verb, reading it in the nominative case, <clears throat> where in the King James Version, it's treated as the object of the verb. So they read it in the accusative case. And that's unfortunate, but that's the way it is because the word techna is the plural form of technon, and it's the same form in nom nominative and accusative cases. So it's hard to distinguish. It's debatable as to whether it's nominative or accusative here. And, and very often, such terms are accompanied by an article, and the article would have a different form, whether it would be nominative or accusative. But here, in this passage, there's no article accompanying techna. So, so that's why I say that it's whether it's the subject or object, whether it's nominative or accusative, is entirely debatable because John didn't, evidently, because it's missing from every ancient manuscript, John did not use an article. The formative verb, <clears throat> and that's the real issue here, that, that's the primary issue. The formative verb, genestahi, is in the middle voice. And there's three voices in, in, um, in Greek that we don't have in English. English is a really dumbed down language. When you write a verb in Greek, you could write it in one of three voices, the active voice, the passive voice, and the middle voice. And the, the basic distinction is that in the active voice, Bill throws the ball. The active voice, right, is, is, um, indicates that the subject is initiating the action and performing the action. Where in the passive voice, the ball was thrown by Bill. The subject was the receiver of the action. So not only do you have case, which determines how to read the sentence, <clears throat> you, also, you also have voice, the voice of the verbs. So, and then there's other, other um, features of the verb, such as the person and the tense. So verbs in Greek are very complex. 
unlike verbs in English, which are really simple. So the middle voice properly determines that the subject is the initiator of the action and he's the recipient of the action. So he really like throws it, Bill throws himself and there wouldn't be a word for ball. Or maybe there would be a word for ball and <clears throat> we could write Bill threw himself the ball, right? <clears throat> Depending on the context and some of those other features of, of the verb. So that's the middle voice. And, and sometimes it, it's used in other ways. And that there's a few other explanations of why a middle voice verb would be used, but that's the primary distinction. And, and that's probably too much of a digression, but we see that this verb in the middle voice can be used in the active sense, and it is even in scripture. I have an example at 2 Maccabees chapter 13, verse 13, where the verb appears in the king in, in, in the Greek, and the King James Version made a really simplistic translation of it. And and it says Kahi, which is and, genestahi, which is our same form of the verb here in John 1.12, tes polios egkratais, and tes polios is of the city, it's the genitive form, and egkratais is control. This phrase I would render more literally or more properly, word for word, and to attain, that's that word that we have here, genestahi, which we're contending with the King James over, and to contain control of the city. In Acts chapter 17, um, Acts chapter 27, I'm sorry, verse 16, we see the same word, genestahi, used in a very similar manner. Perikratis, which is sort of like egkratis, control. Genestahi, teis skafes. Now, teis skafes is a boat or a skiff, and I translated that to attain full control of the skiff. Now, the King James translators in Acts chapter 27, 16 rendered that phrase kind of strangely, to come by the boat which in modern English would mean to get the boat. <clears throat> and these examples clearly support a similar interpretation of the same verb as I have translated it in this context here in John chapter 1, verse 12. The children of Israel cannot become children of Yahweh. Being children of Adam, they already are children of Yahweh. As Adam was a son of God in Luke chapter 3, verse 38. <clears throat> and we are also told that explicitly in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. And I have just a couple of examples to show that the children of Israel are already children of God. And they were already the children of God scattered abroad in John chapter 11.
if they were scattered abroad, as John wrote that in John chapter 11, and they were already children of God, as John wrote that in John chapter 11, and they never heard the gospel of Christ because it didn't go out to the nations until long after his resurrection in John chapter 20, right? Not in John chapter 11. How did they become children of God without Christ? How could that be? If only Christ could give you power to become a child of God, why did John wrote of the right of these other children of God scattered abroad who never heard Christ? The Judeo-Christian interpretation of John chapter 1, verse 12 is a lie. And that alone proves it. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 1, the children of Israel are addressed, ye are the children of the Lord your God. In Isaiah chapter 45, after the children of Israel were taken off by the Assyrians into deportation, thus saith Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, and his Maker, ask of me things to come concerning my sons, and concerning the works of my hands, command ye me. And he's talking about those same children of God scattered abroad that John was talking about in chapter 11 of this gospel. Romans chapter 8. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Paul writing to the Romans. Hebrews chapter 2. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God has given me. Paul citing the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets. For as much then as the children are, present tense, partakers of flesh and blood, even before his crucifixion, he also himself likewise took part in the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. All of those verses prove that there were children of God in the world, both in the time of the ancient prophets and in the time of the apostles, who had never heard Christ, yet they were still considered children of God. So why do they lie about this passage? You don't have to hear Jesus and believe to be a child of God, according to John chapter 11 according to Hebrews chapter 2, according to Romans chapter 8, according to Isaiah chapter 45, and according to Deuteronomy chapter 14. I have a hundred more witnesses if I needed them. Maybe 50 more. It doesn't matter. We only need two or three. We've established this. So once again, it should become clear <clears throat> that, the children of, that the children are already children, whether they heard the gospel or not. So if they were children before they heard the gospel, then we cannot accept the claim that somehow they must hear and the gospel and believe it in order to become children. In Romans chapter 9, Paul was concerned only for the true Israelites, who he called his kinsmen according to the flesh who are Israelites, to whom pertains <clears throat> the adoption 
and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. Whose are the fathers? In other words, if you don't belong to the fathers, if you're not a child of the fathers, meaning Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, then you don't belong in this picture. And of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came. So he's talking about those same fathers that Christ himself descended from, who is over all. God bless forever. Amen. That's the King James version of the pericope from the end of Romans chapter 9, verse 3, through Romans chapter 9, verse 5. And that leads me to a digression to discuss this word adoption. I don't know if you have anything to add. We're not done with genestahi. And, so, and so, yeah, it's clear that John 1.12. We were deported, dispersed, and um, therefore in darkness, and, and the gospel reconciled us, and it gave us back our laws and reconciled us with God. So we were adopted back as his people once more, right? Well, right. That's the whole meaning of Scripture in a nutshell, right there. That's exactly what the Scripture is saying. That's exactly what you find in every chapter of the prophet Isaiah. That's exactly what you find in Jeremiah, in, in chapters 30 and 31, and, and in Hosea, cha chapter, the whole book of Hosea. That's exactly what's being explained. And that's what you find here in John, and John is not contradicting the prophets, and neither did Paul. Their words are in 100% agreement with the prophets once they are properly translated. These proper translations are possible. That's the reason for my translation. That's the reason for these demonstrations, that if we can translate it so that they don't contradict themselves and so that they don't contradict the prophets, then that way is the only way they should be translated because they don't contradict the rest of the Bible. So let's take this digression and talk about this term adoption. The word adoption, it only appears in the writings of Paul first in scripture. It only appears, I don't remember, four or five times in Paul. And I'm even going to look that up to, to make sure I'm correct. It, it's... Um, Three times in Romans, once in Galatians, and once in Ephesians. And, and I could search on the Greek term, and I had the same exact results. So it was never translated any other way but adoption, and it was only five times in the epistles of Paul. Out of the whole Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, Apocrypha, whatever, <clears throat> it appears five times all in the letters of Paul. Quiothesia literally means the placing of a son. And contrary even to Liddell and Scott, it does not literally mean adoption as we know it. And that's because to the Greeks and Romans, to the ancient Greeks and Romans, the, the relationship of a father and a son was twofold. And even to the ancient Hebrews, it was twofold. When the Greeks and Romans adopted a son who was not a son in the first place, the term they used to describe the actual act of adoption 
is eispoiesis. Eispoiesis means to make into. It's a making into of something. The New Testament does not use that term, eispoiesis. In fact, the term huiothesia is a compound word from huios, or sun, and thesis, which is a setting or a placing. It's the same word from which we get the English word thesis. In the same passage in Romans, there is another such word, nomothesia or nomothesia, which is from the word nomos, or law, and this same word, thesis, or thesis, and the King James Version in Romans translates that as the giving of the law. The laws were already laws, just like in Huiothesia, the giving of a son, or the placing of a son. The son is already a son. In ancient Greek and Roman law, you had the act of adoption, where you made someone who was not a son into a son. And then you put him in your will and gave him property rights in your house. That is the huiothesia. That is the placing of a son. We only have a one-dimensional idea of adoption in our modern society, where in ancient Greek and ancient Rome, the idea of adoption, well, you could adopt someone as a son and, and care for that person. That doesn't mean he has property rights. That doesn't mean that he is entitled to your estate. They had a twofold idea. Roman emperors would adopt a son, even if they had natural sons. If they didn't want their natural sons to be the next emperor, they would adopt the man they wanted to be the next emperor as their son. And then they would leave him in, in their will as the heir to their throne. So it was too So Bill, you kind of had to adopt your own son to put him in your will. If not, he wouldn't get anything. Well, you you would you wouldn't have to go through the legal act of adopting him because he is a natural son. So that word ispoiesis would not be used to describe it, right? But the placing of a son is the the, the treating of a son and as the rightful heir or as an heir, that is what the New Testament is describing. The children of God scattered abroad are already his children, but they were alienated from him. They couldn't be given the position of sons unless they were reconciled through Christ. That's what the word means in the New Testament. You reconcile yourself to Christ, you keep the commandments and do the things he commanded, and then you could have that place as a son rather than just being a physical son. You're not going to leave your estate to sons who are disobedient. 
if you're a man and you've had four, five, six children and, and, and your oldest son runs off in race mixes and, and gets hooked on drugs, are you going to leave him your estate simply because he's your oldest son? No, he has lost his position. He no longer merits his position as a son. So he no longer has the huiothesia. And your next son might be perfectly obedient he, and, and help you and, and work the farm with you. He's the one that deserves being left the estate. He maintained that huiothesia, that position. That's the distinction that the scripture is making. So we have this word nomothesia in the same exact passage in Romans, and it means the giving of the law. Only the children of Israel were ever given the law. So Paul wrote to the Galatians in chapter 4 of his epistle that Christ had come to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption or the huiothesia of sons. And there, the we can only mean those who were formerly under the law, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So in any event, in this passage from Romans... Paul had informed his readers that the adoption or the huiothesia is for Israel, that it pertains to Israel, for those who were true Israelites, his kinsmen according to the flesh. And nowhere does it state that the huiothesia or adoption is merely for those who believe. Nowhere does it state that. In Romans chapter 9, in Galatians chapter 4, it's the adoption is explicitly for those Israelites who were under the law, who were Paul's kinsmen according to the flesh. They're the only ones that it's for. Now, returning to the subject of the sons of God, Abraham was never told that Gentiles or any alien nations would somehow become his offspring. Rather, Abraham was told that his offspring would become many nations which the children of Israel did become, which can be evidenced in history, and which Paul explained in Romans chapter 4. They were the children of God scattered abroad, which John referred to in John chapter 11. I think it was verse 54. When you understand all that, John chapter 1 verse 12 can be very easily translated in a way which is natural to the Greek meaning of each and every word and how it appears in a sentence that does not conflict with all of these other verses and, and concepts and statements in Scripture. So that's the way it has to be translated in order to be quote-unquote correct or right. But first, I want to speak about the scope of authority or ex exousia to which John was referring, because that's also determined by the context of the gospel. He wasn't referring to people today. He wasn't referring to people 100 years after his own time without violating any of the rules of Greek grammar. It is certainly more proper to render John chapter 1, verse 12 to say, but as many who received him, he gave to them the authority 
which children of God are to attain to those believing in his name. That's the proper way to translate John 1.12, and it's not in conflict with any other scriptures. And it's still perfectly acceptable Greek grammar. The scope of John's statement here in John 1.12 is that as many of the people of the land from John 1.11 who had believed in Christ, to them he gave the power which the sons of God are to attain. That means that those who believed Christ were given the powers granted through the Holy Spirit. For example, at the first Christian Pentecost, which we see in Acts chapter 2. That is the context of this clause. Yet certain of the apostles were blessed with the ability to do wonderful things, even during the course of the ministry of Christ. Therefore, to see what John was more immediately referring to, we will cite gospel passages from Matthew chapters 16 and 18 and Luke chapter 10 as examples. Doing this, we shall see that our translation of John 1.12 is consistent with all scripture, while that of the King James Version produces serious conflicts which cannot be readily resolved. Matthew chapter 16, and I say also unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock, and, and that word is Petra or bedrock, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The word Petros is the name Peter. It doesn't mean bedrock. It means just a stone. Petra being the feminine form means bedrock, and Petros being the masculine form being just a little stone, and that's just a feature of that same Greek grammar where nouns have gender. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Christ giving Peter the power that the children of God will attain. Matthew chapter 18. The uh, Catholics love that verse, right? Well, yeah, they love that verse because they try to say that that verse substantiates the Pope. That's crazy. There's absolutely no connection at all. Because Peter went to Rome and possibly died in Rome. That, that, that is the substantiation for their whole Catholic church. No, that's not what that verse is saying. Matthew chapter 18. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever you shall bind on earth, you shall bind in heaven, shall be bound in heaven, I'm sorry. And whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. <laughs> Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth, that's the church, right? Wherever two or three of you are gathered. If two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. Well, John or Matthew in this case, I'm sorry, Matthew didn't write that for us today. Matthew wrote that as the words which Christ was speaking to his apostles, that he gave them 
the power which the children of God are to attain, as we translated John 1.12. Luke chapter 20, to as many as believed on him, right? It's not just to the 12. This is Luke chapter 20. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 20. I'm not going to cite the entire passage. I'll try to leave, leave out some parts of it which are really irrelevant to what we're trying to, the point we're trying to make here. After these things, the Lord, meaning Christ, appointed others 70 also. Another 70 also, we would write in modern English. And sent them two and two, or in pairs, before his face into every city and place where he himself would come. So he's making this journey to Jerusalem and he's sending his disciples ahead into these various cities. And into whatsoever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you and heal the sick that are therein and say unto them, the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. But into whatsoever city you enter and they receive you not, go your ways out into the streets of the same and say, even the very dust of your city which cleaves on us, we do wipe off against you. Notwithstanding, be ye sure of this, that the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. He that hears you hears me, and he that despises you despises me, and he that despises me despises him that sent me. So that was their commission. And then after their mission was completed, and we don't know exactly how long they were gone, but after their mission was completed, we read from verse 17, and the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven, again, relating the devils of his time to that original rebellion of the fallen angels. And, and that's true whether those devils are embodied spirits or, or false accusers or disembodied spirits or demons. That's still true because the books of Enoch and certain other apocryphal works attribute the presence of demons to those same fallen angels. And here it is, demons in the Greek, Luke 10, 17. Well, in verse 19, Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions, those embodied demons, over all the power of the enemy and over all the power of the enemy. Who are the serpents and scorpions but the people that he identified as a race of vipers and saying that they were the genemata or, or offspring of vipers, that their parents were vipers. So, nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding in this rejoice not that the spirits, meaning those demons, are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now, reading this, it is fully apparent that these things were exactly what John was referring to. Sixty years later, when he recorded these words in his gospel, 
in reflection upon the things that had transpired during the ministry of Christ that he gave to them, to those who believed on his name at that time, to those disciples who followed him in Judea, the powers that the children of God are to attain. As Christ said, that no man is above his master. Yeah, we're not walking around now healing people. So, sorry, Bill. Right, we don't. We don't have that power now. I was going to say we're not walking around now healing people, are we? No. No, we're not. I mean, we could see our brethren who are sick be healed through constant prayer, but we don't go around just touching people and healing them like the apostles did. And and Benny Hinn and, and clowns like that, they take advantage of the misunderstandings of these passages in, in order to run their rackets, because what Benny Hinn's running is a racket. And all of these faith healers, if faith healing worked, that and, and this is becoming a cliche, but if faith healing worked the way Benny Hinn makes it work, then he should be touring hospitals every day. And, and people should be jumping up and flying out of their hospital beds. And, and then they would rejoice in Christ if that worked. But you won't find Benny Hinn in a hospital. Neither does this passage give us license today to take squat monsters out of the jungles of the netherworld and attempt to somehow make them into children of God by exhorting them to believe. Rather, upon the restoration of the children of Israel, they, the children of God, will have that same power that the apostles were given because Christ said that he being perfected shall be as his master. In the first century, the first Christian Pentecost, that was the deposit of the spirit which was later spoken of by Paul of Tarsus and that is a Christian promise but that is also in the first century it was that to which John was referring that Christ gave his disciples those abilities at that time that's exactly what John was referring to and nothing more he wasn't writing that clause to mean what these modern Judeo-Christians believe it means. And then they could never bring their belief into reality or fruition. This leads us to discuss the last portion of, of, of this passage, which is verse 13 in John chapter 1. This final clause of this three-verse passage. And this clause is a conclusion of that second clause. So speaking of those same sons, those same children of God, we read, as John 1.13 is translated in the King James Version, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And this passage also, when it's properly interpreted, substantiates our interpretation of verse 12, but not the interpretation found in the King James Version, because it attests that the aforementioned children are born. 
It's how they're born that matters, not whether or not they believe. So we see that not all so-called people are born of God, but at least some are born by the will or the desires of man or of the flesh. The verb translated as born is actually at the very end of the Greek text of the verse. After it says, nor from the will of man, we see Greek words which mean, but born of God. And that's where those words belong. But who are born or who were born of God. While it is fine to put it at the beginning, as it is in the King James Version, I prefer to keep the original word order, so I translate the passage to read. Not those from of mixed origin. And that's the point of contention here. That's the real point of contention, because the King James has only blood there, not of blood. <clears throat> not those from of mixed origin, nor those from of the desire of the flesh nor from of the will of man, but they who have been born from God. That's how the passage should be read. And of course, in the Christianity New Testament, I put Yahweh, which is not as literal, but which from a Christian perspective is absolutely correct. So first, the Greek noun philema is will or desire, so I decided to render it alternately where it appears twice here, but it's really the same word. In any case, it may readily be apparent that our only real dispute with the King James Version is in the first clause, in the words, ouk ex hymatone, where it reads, not of blood. And the King James has only blood. But we have not from of mixed origin. We do not accept the King James version of exhymatone as of blood because the form hymatone is a genitive plural of the word hyma, which is blood. And yes, it could have said hymatus, which is the genitive singular. There is a clear, distinct, genitive, singular form of this word, John purposely used the plural. In all manuscripts of John, the word is plural here in John. If John wanted to say blood, why would he use a plural form of the word? And if it says bloods, which it does, why would the King James translators ignore the plural form? Why would they do that? And if all men were of one blood, as the King James Version's translators wrongly read Acts chapter 17, verse 26, because there's really no word for blood in that passage, but they wrote it, all men are of one blood. If all men are of one blood, then how could there be more than one blood in relation to men as John professes here? How could that be? So here we may perceive some of the many conflicts which these translations in the King James Version can cause. If we're all of one blood, how could John talk about men born of bloods here in the plural? 
I don't know they, if you uh, cover it up every time, don't they? To, it does to seem like show they that there's it up. different bloods, different races. Absolutely. Absolutely. According to a search, do a search in, 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 I use Bible work software to prepare at least most of my podcasts. And I still use the paper, the paper books when I need to, but Bible works makes my work real easy. Otherwise I would never be able to produce a two hour commentary in two days. If I only use paper books, right? So according to a search of the, Nestle A land Novum Testamentum Greca. That's the Greek text of the scripture, the critical Greek text. Using BibleWorks software, there are 97 occurrences of the word hyma or blood in the New Testament. Now, using a concordance to the Greek Testament by Moulton and Geddon as a guide, out of as many of, as 99 occurrences of the word hyma, or blood in the New Testament. This is the only time in the New Testament that the word hyma or blood appears in the plural. So for that reason alone, this phrase from bloods merits investigation. So I would investigate that by turning to the Greek Old Testament, which is the Septuagint where I will only concern myself with the plural form of this word. The singular form has only one meaning, which is blood. But, and, and it appears on over 300 occasions, I believe, right? All we care about is the plural form, because the plural form doesn't simply mean blood. So, at the time when I wrote this essay and did my John translation, I only had paper books as my source, right? And I actually had to count every occurrence and check every occurrence in the paper books, which took a lot longer. In a concordance to the Septuagint and the other Greek versions of the Old Testament, which includes the apocryphal books by Hatch and Redpath, the word hyma appears in the plural in the Septuagint manuscripts on as many as 53 occasions. Counting all listed variations among the Septuagint manuscripts. So, in a particular verse, some manuscripts might have it in the plural and some in the singular, right? So, you have to take that into account. Examining the Septuagint, we must also consider the Hebrew from which the word was apparently translated as it appears in the Masoretic text. So the Hebrew dictionary in Strong's Concordance says of the meaning of the Hebrew word for blood, dam, that figuratively, and then he has in parentheses, especially in the plural, that it means bloodshed. So when we go back to the Septuagint and we examine everywhere that blood appears in the plural in the Greek, this is the obvious meaning that it means bloodshed. In the context on 50 of the 53 occasions where Haima is found in the plural in the Septuagint. And in my notes, I will have a list of those occasions. And it means bloodshed on all 50 occasions where Haima is in the plural. So, in all of these places, it is apparent, and 
significantly, it is important to notice that the translators, when they created the Septuagint, they maintained the Hebraism. It's a Hebraism that when the word in Hebrew for blood is written in a plural, that that means bloodshed. That's a Hebraism. It's a particular feature of the Hebrew language, right? And wherever the Hebrew word for blood had apparently been in the plural in the original, the Septuagint writers simply wrote it in the plural in Greek. On two occasions, Brenton's translation recognizes the idiom. He didn't always. Where he rendered the word blood guiltiness in Psalm 50 and bloodshed in Ezekiel 24. But if one reads all 50 of these passages, it will become apparent that they all may have been and should have been rendered in the same manner as bloodshed. So that leaves <clears throat> three other occasions where Haima is plural in these Septuagint manuscripts. And one is in Amos 2.4, where only the Codex Alexandrinus has haimata, or bloods, and all the other manuscripts have matahia, and that's actually a transposition of letters, and matahia means vanities. So that's an obvious gloss, so we throw that one out, right? So we're down to 52. We're down to two remaining occurrences of haima in the plural. And they are both found in Hosea chapter 4, verse 2. And the word appears twice. And the Greek clause, kahi moikaya, kekutahi epites geis. And adultery, adultery abounds in the land. And then the second half, kahi haimata ephaimasi. That's two different plural forms of this word, haima, or blood. Kahi haimata ef haimasi megusi, which is mix or mingle. And that's translated by Brenton. And they mingle blood with blood, which is exactly what it means. But even though blood here is plural on each occasion, Brenton translated it as a singular, and they mingled blood with blood. This statement by Hosea is an obvious reference to race mixing, where adultery abounds in the land. Although the King James Version is somewhat different in its translation of the Hebrew, Brenton's translation is faithful to the Greek of the Septuagint text, which obviously differs from the Masoretic text here. So, except that he translated, they mingle blood with blood, rather than they mingle bloods with bloods. But it's not talking about bloodshed. It's talking about adultery. Now, returning to the New Testament, apart from the passage at John 1.13, Haima appears on 98 other occasions, including some spurious interpolations, which is why there it's only 97 total occasions in that there's a difference of two occasions between Moulton Geddon and the NA27 because of some interpolations in, in Luke chapter 22 and 
in some manuscripts at Acts chapter 17, and where at the end of Matthew chapter 27, verse 49, some manuscripts contain a line which is similar to the text of John 19, 34, but which is not found in the King James Version. So there are some spurious interpolations. So of all of these 98 other occurrences where Hyma appears in the plural twice and only in a couple of manuscripts, and that's in Revelation 16, 6, it's plural in the Codex Sinaiticus, where it appears in that manuscript to be a gloss for the Hebraism, since the context is bloodshed. But all of the other codices and papyri have Hyma in the singular in that passage at Revelation 16.6. And the second is at Revelation 18.24, where the text upon which the King James Version is based, the majority text, which is actually a large collection of late medieval manuscripts, has Hyma in the plural, as do a couple of 10th century manuscripts. But all of the older manuscripts, which date from the 4th and 5th centuries, have Hyma in the singular in Revelation 18.24 as well. So it's relatively safe to say that the word blood in the New Testament appears in the plural only at John 1.13, this passage here, which all of the extant manuscripts of John attest, and that even the Hebraistic use of the word, where it is rendered in the plural, where bloodshed is meant, did not carry over into the New Testament scriptures. In other words, where we see blood in the plural in Hebrew, in the Old Testament, that means bloodshed. And therefore, the translators put it in the plural in Greek. But that does not carry over into the New Testament Greek because... Perhaps blood should be in the plural at Hebrews 12.4, where bloodshed is the context. But there, the word is singular. Wherever bloodshed is referred to, as in Matthew 23.35, Luke 11.50, Romans 3.15, Hebrews 9.22, all of those are talking about bloodshed. But instead of the Hebrew word for blood in the plural, the writers of those Luke, Matthew, and, and Romans and Hebrews, Paul, Matthew, and Luke, use precise Greek words and phrases describing bloodshed. So we cannot imagine that by using the word for blood in the plural here, that John means to refer to bloodshed. He's not. In his Greek-English lexicon, Joseph Thayer defines hyma in part because it basically means blood. But in part, he says, since the first germs of animal life are thought to be in the blood, the word serves to denote generation and origin. And he has, in parentheses, in the classics also. And he cites John 1.13. He cites this very passage. So Thayer admits that where John wrote bloods here, in the plural, Joseph Thayer admits that John meant origins. In their intermediate lexicon, Liddell and Scott have at Hyma, in part, blood. And then further on, like the Latin word sanguis, blood relationship or kin. And then they have a phrase, ho pros 
hymatus, which is genitive singular, or, or I'm sorry, it, it's, I believe it's the nominative singular. It means one of the blood or race. I think it's genitive singular. It's genitive singular. Hyma is nominative. I'm sorry. So hopros hymatus, one of the blood or race. And likewise, the large ninth edition of Liddell and Scott has under their definition of hyma that it could mean blood relationship, kin, blood, or origin. So here in John 1.13, where hyma appears in the plural, Thayer and the other lexicographers admitting that it refers to origin and Thayer connecting that to this very passage in John 1.13. Being plural, it must denote multiple origins, which is why I have translated it as mixed blood or mixed origin. The state of being of bloods. As Thayer himself nearly suggests, but where he does not himself address the plural form, but rather he ignored it. And we also see this as the usage of the plural in Hosea chapter 4, verse 2, in the Septuagint, where it is speaking of adultery in the context of adulterous race mixing, that adultery abounds throughout the land and they mingle bloods with bloods. In other words, a bunch of bastards are having babies together and the children of Israel join them. Since the Hebraism concerning bloodshed certainly does not fit the context for the plural of Hyma at John 1.13, and that Hebraism appears nowhere else in the Gospels, even though bloodshed is often discussed, this explanation that the word denotes mixed origins here is the only valid alternative. Otherwise, why else should the word appear in the plural here only of all places? And why does the word appear here at all? When in so many places in the New Testament, genea and genos are used of race and birth rather than hyma. The plural of hyma here was used to convey a specific meaning, which other words and phrases could not do in so simple and eloquent a manner, especially in conjunction with the phrases which follow concerning carnal desires and the will of man as opposed to the will of Yahweh. For it is unchecked carnal desire which got Adamic man into trouble from the beginning, even as it is evident in Genesis chapter 3. Adam was not merely the first man, but he was the first Adamic man, the first white man, as attested by the biblical records and the historical records, the anthropological and archaeological records, and the very meaning of the word Adam in Hebrew, which means, Dom means blood, and Adam means ruddy. So that reading, mixed origins for the plural of Hyma, makes sense in the biblical 
context here in John 1.13, as we have just explained, it is fully realized once it is understood that the Judean nation consisted of both Edomites and Israelites. And Esau, the father of the Edomites, took his wives of the Canaanite races, who themselves were mixed with the Kenites and, and the Rephaim and the other non-Adamic races, such as the Kenizzites and Cabanites and Perizzites, who did not descend from Adam. They were aboriginal. They were non-Adamic peoples of unrecorded origin, along with the Rephaim, who were the descendants of the Nephilim, who were the fallen angels. So with all of this, I must read John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, fully within the constructs and meanings of the Koine Greek, as these words are defined in the lexicons and also used in the Septuagint. So I'm not making any innovations here. When I read these, past, these verses to say, he came into his own land, and the men of the country received him not. But as many who received him, he gave to them the authority which the children of Yahweh are to attain to those believing in his name, not those from of mixed origin, nor those from of the desire of the flesh, nor from of the will of man, but they who have been born from Yahweh, or from God, if you will. I am not violating any of the, the meanings of any word in order to write the passage in that way. And when I write the passage in that way, all of the conflicts with the prophets and, and the later words of the apostles disappear. They're all gone. There's no conflict. Even today, the phrase mixed blood is commonly used to people with multiracial backgrounds. Had the King James Version rendered hymatone at John 1.13 literally of bloods rather than of blood, surely many people might have recognized the true meaning of such language. And they might have always understood that the word of God forbids race mixing, which it does. But now this brings us to our next mistranslation, which is found in John chapter 3, and, and that's this phrase, born from above. It's connected right to, one mistranslation is connected right to another. And, and the, the Judeo-Christians and their reading of John 1.12, they'll read that and bring you right to John chapter 3 and tell you you have to be born again and believe in, in order to be a son of God. So you have to be baptized in water to be born again, and then you have to believe and, and be a son of God. And you make yourself a son of God by doing that. That's what they believe. I don't know if you have anything to say. Yeah, yeah, I was just going to uh, reiterate what you said, that it leads on to the other. And uh, if it had just said of blood, people might have understood that, you know, a race mixed person can never become a son of God, never will be a son of God, and never was. And that leads to this, that you have to be born from above, i.e. a descendant of Adam, right? Absolutely. And, and, and this is not saying born again. Those born from Yahweh can only be those descendants of Adam endowed with the spirit of Yahweh. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. 
who are born in accordance with his law of kind after kind, and that law is repeated five times in Genesis chapter 1. And it's also repeated in different language in Leviticus, in Leviticus 19.19, where, where it's even commanded that we don't let our cattle gender or mate with a diverse kind. Excuse me, I'm burping because I'm drinking coffee, I guess. We shouldn't let our cattle, we mustn't let our cattle mate with a, a, a an animal of a diverse kind. In other words, we shouldn't make mules from horses and donkeys. But we do it, but we shouldn't. Fornication is the pursuit of strange or different flesh, according to Jude chapter 7. If Adam... And Eve, if we were all of the same flesh, there would be no law against fornication. Because, as Jude explains it, it's the pursuit of different flesh. And Paul of Tarsus used it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to refer to race mixing. And so did the ancient Greeks. So did Strabo of Cappadocia. So did Aristotle in his Animalia use that same word to designate that same thing that Jude explained, the pursuit of different flesh, somebody of a different kind. And we wouldn't have that law in the Bible if we were all from Adam. In Genesis chapter 2, after Adam was looking for a helpmate among all the animals of creation and couldn't find one, Yahweh created Eve as a suitable helpmate. And we read, And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. They could only be one flesh if they started out that way. That's the proper grounds for marriage, for biblical marriage, right here in Genesis chapter 2. So, referring to this phrase, born from above. Upon Christ's having been accosted by Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, as it reads in the King James Version, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That Now, in order to understand the context of that, we have to see what Nicodemus said to Christ. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. Now, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Not all the Pharisees believed that. Most of them were denying it. So Nicodemus is speaking about himself and whoever might be with him. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. That's why Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot understand the kingdom of God. Well, Nicodemus understood it. He professes to have understood it, but he didn't understand what Christ meant when he said born from above. So he contended or, or asked questions over the meaning of that. He didn't understand it, but he believed Christ. And Christ said that because he believed, except a man be born from above, 
he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, he's telling, he's actually um, complimenting Nicodemus for, for understanding and, and, and knowing that he was from God and having the desire to come to him to tell him that. What he says has to be a response to what Nicodemus said. So obviously Christ is saying that some of these people here in Jerusalem are born from above and some of them aren't. So they can't get it. The word translated as born again does not mean born again. Rather, it means born from above. That unless a man is from above, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. These notes that I'm about to go over or present, that they were adapted from part eight of my commentary on the Gospel of John, titled Origin and Destiny, because that's what Christ is teaching here. And Nicodemus, being a Pharisee, being imbued with 11 of the Pharisees and the universalist teachings of Judea, where Edomites and Canaanites and anybody else can become a Jew, he couldn't understand what Christ said. The phrase from above is from a single Greek word, anothen, and is more popularly translated as again in the King James and other Bible versions. Later on, it, in the same chapter of John, anothen is translated as from above. John 3.31 he that cometh from above is above all. So they got it right there. They translated it properly there. And why did they translate it <clears throat> as again here? Except to support their church doctrines rather than to seek the truth. I found no place in scripture where this term must be translated as again, this word anothen. It is an adverb describing the direction from which something comes, or its source, or its origin. It is the opposite of another adverb, katothen, which means from below. The preposition ana basically means up. And its opposite, kata, basically means down. So according to Liddell and Scott, anothen is an adverb of place, from above, from on high. And it was also used like the word anno as above or on high. And in certain contexts, such as speaking of time, from the beginning or of people by descent, from above, right? And, and finally, they say over again or anew. And I would protest that <clears throat> since they cited only the New Testament, customarily providing the translations which are found in the authorized King James Version. That's what they did. In the intermediate version of their lexicon, they offered no other citations in the secular writings where the word was ever used to mean again or anew. In the larger ninth edition of the Liddell and Scott lexicon, they do cite a passage from Flavius Josephus. However, the citation is not convincing. 
William Whiston translated a line where Josephus wrote of Abimelech in reference to Isaac, and he said that he renewed his friendship with him. However, we would write the same phrase to state that he turned to the friendship he made with him from the beginning. That's the proper way to translate that phrase. William Whiston just shortened it and translated it more or less casually. He renewed his friendship with him. That's not what the passage is saying. The word anothen is an adverb and not a verb as Whiston translated it as renewed. He took an adverb and translated it as a verb. That's wrong. Whiston took three words, which are two verbs and an adverb, and he translated them as one word in English, which is renewed. And the entire phrase, trapentos, which is a verb, philion, anothen, which is an adverb, and philion is a noun, it means friendship, and then another verb, poietahi, and then pros autan, which is basically to him or with him, he took those six words, which include two verbs and an adverb, and he turned them into five words, which only with only one verb. So I, the Wiston translation is far from literal. In the context of the account, Trapentos should be he turned. It's a verb by itself. That's what it means. He turned. Poetahi is a verb by itself. It means he made. And anothen should mean, as an adverb, from the beginning. Since Josephus was describing the former friendship which the two men had and how it may have been ruined. So with that, we would translate the phrase in Wiston. He turned to the friendship he had made with him from the beginning. That's exactly literal. And anothen does not mean renewed. Because Wiston actually took two verbs and an adverb and translated them as one word, renewed. And that's ridiculous to claim that that's a definition of the word, of the adverb only. When it, Whiston took two verbs and an adverb to come up with that one word. That's what we're up against when we seek to properly translate the scripture. These are the hurdles we have to overcome. So Liddell and Scott are wrong. So they're just grasping at scores. Yeah, Sorry. Liddell and Scott are wrong because Whiston was wrong. And because the King James translators are also wrong. Anothen does not mean again or anew, ever. Not by itself. It needs other words to come up with that meaning, as Whiston had two other verbs to help him with that translation. If anothen meant... So they just took a liberty here, didn't they? Yeah, it's a huge liberty. And I don't think Whiston did it on purpose. He was just looking for a shorter, simpler way in English to say something that was longer and, and more complex in Greek. I don't know how you get two verbs and an adverb, three distinct words, and translate them all into one verb. I, I would never do that. I would always seek to translate it 
to find a way to translate it literally. <clears throat> so that you could see that this English word comes from that Greek word, and this other English word comes from that Greek word. And, and my translation, turned to the friendship he made from him with the beginning, is perfectly literal and easy enough to say and understand. But Whiston only has renewed his friendship with him. And I'm not saying that I should sit and retranslate all of Josephus. That's a huge task. And, and Whiston just sought to express it in a simple way. But it may not mean much in Josephus, but it means a lot in the gospel of Christ. To get it right. And in, in this phrase, born from above, there's only one verb, and it's born. So this born again, I don't know where that comes from, except church doctrine. And, and Whiston's simplification of the language of Josephus simply and unintentionally, I believe, facilitates that church doctrine. So, so, Bill, this is where um, the Bible's translated it completely wrong. And because the King James Version is so authoritative that it becomes an authority onto its own, that even dictionaries have to bow down and, and use that translation and, and note that it's legit, right? Well, that's absolutely true. And, and Liddell and Scott, for nearly every Greek word in their lexicon, if, if that word also appeared in Scripture, they usually cited how it was translated in Scripture. And that becomes an authoritative part of the definition of the word. But my approach to Scripture is a lot more critical. If the ancient Greek secular writers did not use that word with that meaning, then I'm going to be very critical of the way it's translated and seek to understand the word first by turning to the Septuagint to see how the word was used in the Septuagint because it is the Greek Septuagint that had the greatest influence on the Greek of the apostles. Most of their quotes are from the Septuagint. It's very clear that they read the Septuagint. So first I go through every occurrence of that word in the Septuagint and see how it was there, and then turn to the plain meaning of the word in, in the secular Greek writers. And from there, I am going to get my understanding of what the word means. And that's a much, um, much more logical and, and honest Christian approach to the Greek of the New Testament than simply believing the King James translators, who clearly had an agenda to uphold the doctrines and structure of the Anglican Church. And, and I've proven that in, in other discussions in, in the past. This understanding is of the utmost importance that this word should never be interpreted again or anew because a significant doctrine taught by many denominational churches has been built on this one word, which, if it is not understood properly, has caused generations of millions of people to believe a lie. And that's what it's done. For a proper example of the use of the word anothen from the Septuagint, we see in Ezekiel chapter 41, verse 7, in the famous description of the temple, we read, 
And the breadth of the upper side was made according to the projection out of the wall against the upper one round about the house, that it might be enlarged above and open, and that men might go to the upper chambers from those below, and that word is cat-oathen, and from the ground sills to the third story. So the Greek words anothen and katothen are correctly translated as above and below in this passage. Likewise, a phrase which appears several times in the Greek Septuagint, in both Genesis and in the prophets, is ho-uranos anothen. Ho-uranos is the heaven. Heaven is a masculine form there. I just thought I would note that. Ho-uranos anothen, which is literally the heaven above. The word anothen appears 23 times in the Greek of the Septuagint, and on every single occasion, it means from above, above or atop, to be on top of something else. However, on one occasion, where once again we shall dispute the translation, Brenton, in his version of the Septuagint, rendered the phrase palin anothen as again anew, where he was only following the King James Version Apocrypha in the Wisdom of Solomon in chapter 19, verse 6. We see that phrase palin anothen, and it's translated by the King James as again anew, which is actually pretty stupid. It's pretty redundant. And this is interesting, as we shall see. Because this very verse from the Wisdom of Solomon gives us insight into just what Christ had referred to in his statement here in John chapter 3. The word palin, that's the natural adverb. That's the natural word, which in Greek literally means again. And if anothen is also understood to mean again, or anew, then the phrase is utterly redundant. It makes no sense. But in that passage, the phrase palin anothen is used as part of an allegory to describe the events of the Exodus and the giving of the law to the children of Israel as being a creation of God, with language which places the event in a comparison with the creation account of Genesis. Therefore, since it describes an act of creation as being from God, the word anothen in that passage of the Wisdom of Solomon must be interpreted as from above. And here I'm going to recite and also correct the version found in Breton's Septuagint, but this is also the same version found in the King James Version, because I realized later that Brenton simply, he didn't translate the most of the, at least most of, I haven't checked them all, he didn't translate the books of the Apocrypha for himself. What the publication of the Septuagint simply did was take the King James translation of the Apocrypha and insert it into their publication of the Septuagint. It's basically just the King James Version in the apocryphal books of Brenton's Septuagint. Word for word, it's the King James Version. So, in Wisdom of Solomon 19, chapter 19, verse 6, 
for the whole creature or creation in his proper kind was fashioned again, that word palin, from above, that word anothen, meaning fashioned by God, serving the peculiar commandments that were given unto them that thy children, because they were already his children, that thy children might be kept without hurt. That gives us perfect insight, not only into John one John chapter 1 verse 12 but also into this passage here in John chapter 3 and and the term born again or born from above in John chapter 3 verse 3 why would Solomon say that the whole creature in its proper kind was fashioned again from above in relation to the exodus and the giving of the law. Because he was making an allegory comparing the foundation of Israel as a nation to the original creation of the Adamic race, which is described in Genesis. In Luke chapter 3, we see that Adam was the son of God. In Acts chapter 17, Paul addresses the Athenians, who are Ionian Greeks, which are the descendants of Javan, who is mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. And he tells them that God made the nations. Those nations, which are listed in that same chapter of Genesis, that they should, I'm sorry, that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him. And Paul goes on to explain to them that they too are the offspring or sons of God, since they also descended from Adam. The phrase whole creature or whole creation, because it's the same word, catesis, that's often translated as creation, refers to the establishment of the race of Adam over the creation of God in Genesis chapter 1. So the first time the creation <clears throat> was established was in Adam. And the second time it was established Again, from above, not again anew, again from above, from God, was at Mount Sinai, which is what Solomon explained in wisdom. As for that word creature or creation, we shall want to discuss that further where we discuss its use in a spurious portion of the Gospel of Mark, and we'll discuss it there because we'll also discuss it in Romans chapter 8, where it appears there. So these are um, mistranslations or misconceptions we're going to talk about maybe perhaps next week or the week after. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it, it's just crazy how one mistranslation can throw everything off and millions of people can be deceived, right? It's so evil uh, what they've done. Well, well, right. It is evil what they've done. And, and, even, and, and I've tried to state this so many times to, to explain this, early Christianity, before Rome, was polluted with replacement theology. This idea goes all the way back as early as Justin Martyr, <clears throat> who was probably writing 
his apology around 160 to 180 AD in there somewhere. And he believed in replacement theology because he received his Christianity from the Judeans in Jerusalem. And, and well, not in Jerusalem at that time because the Romans destroyed it, but the Jews were still in Judea. He received his Christianity from them rather than from Paul of Tarsus because the Judeans rejected Paul of Tarsus and the later Ebionite Christians who grew out from those same Christians as the Judeans, they rejected Paul of Tarsus. Justin Martyr was ignorant of Paul of Tarsus. Paul of Tarsus was the apostle to the nations. It was Paul of Tarsus who had explained throughout his epistle that these nations to which he brought the gospel were the sons of God scattered abroad. They were the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Justin Martyr, and he didn't accept Paul of Tarsus and never quoted him and never alluded to him. He may not have even known of Paul of Tarsus at that time. They didn't have um, the easy access to information that we have today. They couldn't Google <laughs> apostle and, and come up with Paul of Tarsus, right? Justin Martyr didn't have a <laughs> cell phone. So <laughs> they didn't have this access to information. People only learned what, what information was available in their own little local area from their elders. And, and if their elders four generations before them rejected somebody, Justin Martyr may have grown up hardly ever hearing or never hearing of Paul of Tarsus. So that being said, we really don't know what was in Justin's experience or life, except that in his writings, he never quoted Paul of Tarsus. And he taught replacement theology, that anybody that believes in Jesus was now an Israelite, that the church was Israel and not the, the actual Israelites. This was going around in the second century, and it's wrong, and it's not apostolic Christianity. It was already being corrupted. Original apostolic Christianity was persecuted out of existence, even though we still have many, not all, we still have many of the letters of the apostles. And, and those letters put together with the gospel and the revelation of Christ brings us to the truth of Christian identity. Apostolic Christianity was persecuted out of existence by the end of the first century. And this replacement theology rose up by the middle of the second century. The entire church doctrine has been based on that replacement theology, and that has been facilitated by the lies of the Edomite Jews who claim that they are all of Israel, not only two tribes, but all of Israel. And when you get to the Middle Ages, to the 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th century, you'll see that all of the popular commentaries on the Bible were written by converso Jews. These King James translators, these Geneva Bible translators, the reformers themselves, even Martin Luther was greatly influenced by these Jews. And Luther didn't realize Jewish treachery until the end of his life when he wrote on the Jews and their lies three years before he died. But until then, Luther was in bed with the Jews throughout most of the Reformation. He thought the Jews were good. 
He thought that he was going to be able to convert them once he got rid of the power of the Catholic Church over them. And, and of course, he found out differently once the Pope was gone or, or was no longer had control of, of Germany. Luther found out differently that the Jews were treacherous and they were liars. But even writing on the Jews and their lies, if you look at whose sources he got his theology from, you find Paula Burgos, Nicholas of Lyra, Raymond Lull. They were all Jews that were converts to Christianity. They were all conversos. So Luther got all his theology from Jews. It was no different with Calvin, who may have even been a Jew, but that's debatable. It was no different with, with, with the reformers in England. They were all affected by the Jews. They learned their Christianity from Jews. It is funny that, that Martin Luther, it took his lifetime of being around them to fully realize what they're really like. <laughs> right. And then they were treacherous, but he could never really put his finger on why, because he got his Christianity from Jews too. So he realized and, in and his heart just... that they were treacherous, but he never really understood exactly why. And I was just going to say, um, Justin Martyr, he even, that there's a few lines where he even says that devils can be turned into Israelites, right? I believe so. He, he does identify a race of people. He, he does identify devils and beasts as races of people. He did do that. If he believes in replacement theology, he would also have to believe that they could be converted. We should have um, hit on John 3.16 here and, and the idea that God so loved the world. And, and we've already discussed this at great length, so I don't know if it needs any more mention than this, but that concept of what the world is, that the world is not the entire planet, that's also another portion of this. Another, um, Paul of Tarsus called it the systemization of of, of deception, the King James reflects that per perfectly, what, where layer upon layer of misunderstanding forms an artificial worldview, which we call Judeo-Christianity or denominational Christianity. And that worldview is not what the Bible is really saying in its original language. That there were two different worlds. There's a world that was corrupted, and there's a world that God created. And it's the world he created that he came to save, not the world that was corrupted, not the world that lies under the power of the wicked one. That ain't the world that he came to save. I mean, he doesn't want to preserve the world as it is. He wants to save the world as he created it. The Judeo-Christians do not make that distinction. So it's layer upon layer of... of false impressions and, and bad translations. And, and they do cause conflicts with other scriptures. And, and that's why Christianity is so easily picked apart and, and criticized by Jews and by all of its enemies. Yeah, that because fundamentally it doesn't quite make sense. So, so even um, intelligent whites can look at it and just see flaws in it, right? Right. They just see it's... it's it does, it's not quite right. 
and, and unfortunately a lot of them reject Christianity because of that. Right, because their faith is easily undermined because of these problems and conflicts in Scripture. That once these terms are properly translated, and, and as I tried to show tonight in John 1, verses 11 through 13, I am not violating any of the meanings of these words in my translation. So, so I'm, I'm not defying grammar. I'm not defying the lexicon definitions in my translations. But when I translate the three passages, there is no conflict with the rest of the scripture. None whatsoever. And, and they're totally in line with everything said by the, the prophets and the apostles. John wasn't making lies, and John wasn't making Judeo-Christian doctrine. And um, in your recent Solomon series, didn't you show that even he said that the world is simply Israel, and everything outside is not the world? Well, well right. I cited that passage quite a bit. In, in my commentary on John, that that's what Solomon said. That And, and there are two such statements, one we just cited on, on the giving of the law, that the creation in its proper kind was fashioned again from above. The giving of the law of Sinai is what Solomon's describing there. And then in the next chapter of wisdom in chapter, or in the previous one, it's chapters 18 and 19, these two statements, he, he explains that the world of the world of the scriptures, from that time, from the time that the creation was fashioned again from above in the giving of the law at Sinai, that the breastplate of the high, of the high priest, which contained twelve stones, and each stone represented the twelve the tribe, a tribe of Israel, the twelve stones representing the twelve tribes, that that was the whole world. From that time, that that's the world that God's concerned with. That's the world he came to save. That is the world of salvation. Because the goat nations Christ didn't come to save, they're all going to the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And good goats don't become sheep. And there's nowhere that shows that bad sheep can transmogrify themselves into goats. That's not how the nations are separated. And they're separated as nations, not as individuals. They're, you're either a goat or a sheep. Yeah, not what uh, Justin Martin believed, that they could transform us into real people. Right. Yeah, it's, inc it's incredulous. Okay, well, that was enjoyable. I, I hope I... I don't know. I mean, I, I I didn't try to get as technical as I was in my original commentaries on, on, on these subjects. I'm really just copying my original commentaries and trying to make it more conversational and conglomerate them in, into a, a different format, right? But this has to be done. It has to be discussed. And it has to be discussed over and over again if, if we're going to perfect and, and solidify our exposition of what we know to be true. Uh, I mean, we can know these things are true. That doesn't mean we always explain them effectively. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Because even if you just realize a few verses are wrong, you can then go reread John, and suddenly it's a, a completely different book, and it, it makes so much more sense, right? Absolutely. I, I mean, that that's why I highlighted 
John eleven fifty four, I think it is today, that the children of God are already spread abroad and they never heard the gospel, then how can you say that we have the power to become children of God through Christ? Well, that's not what John wrote. That's the Judeo-Christian interpretation of what John wrote. They're already children of God and Christ gave them the ability to attain this authority to have the Christ gave them this authority, which the children of of God overall are to attain, that they will all one day have. And Christ says that later on, that that no student is above his master, but being perfected, you shall be like your master. And and that's basically saying the same thing that John's saying in, in John 1.12 just in different terms. So we have to ask, are any of us perfected? Well, of course not, because if we were perfected, we would be able to do those things. And, and I have many friends that are sick from one ailment or another whom I would love to see healed, but I wouldn't pretend to be able to do it myself because I'm far from perfected. So that's just life. That's what we have to deal with. That's why we pray. The way the Judeo-Christians believed it, the, the way the Judeo-Christians translate John 1.12, if you say you believe, yet we should all be able to heal each other. There would be no sick Christians in the world. So you might say, well, you don't believe good enough. And I would say to the man, if I don't believe good enough and you do, well, not everybody believed perfectly that Christ healed, so why don't you heal me? And he won't be able to. So he's a hypocrite. And the translation in the King James Version is just wrong. Period. It's not that Christianity isn't true, it's just that the translations are false. So they leave false impressions. I think that's all I should say. Otherwise, I could ramble all day. Thank you for being here. Yeah, that's fine. And we can... Um... No worries. We can pick up the other Gospels and the mistranslations. It's going to go on. And then when we get to Paul, they butcher Paul completely. Right. There are a few key translations in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, mistranslations or misunderstandings. There aren't a lot. There really aren't. But I'm going to try to pick out the most, the most important ones that, once again, when they're translated correctly, give us a different impression of the gospel and and they certainly are there there's there's um two in luke that i have in mind and and one each in matthew and mark that are crucial to how we understand christianity and the purpose of the apostles and when we get to paul and to acts the book of acts we're going to find many more it, it's um quite apparent that that the most mistranslations are in the writings of the apostle to the nations so that the denominational churches obfuscated the identity of the nations to which Paul was sent. And even doing that, they can't hide his message entirely, that you can find it in the King James Version, but it's not consistent in the King James Version and that's the problem. When you mistranslate this verse over here, it's going to show when you get down the road a few chapters to that verse over there. 
and there's going to be a conflict. But the real word of God, translated properly, has no conflict, period. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bill. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of our European race. Thanks. Praise Yahweh, and good night.